the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, we're still on this expedition in our revived series, Oh, That First Means That, introduced in 2022, airing from January through September, with 31 programs. But this past May in 2023, by popular demand, we're now back in full swing. We're on Part 52. The original 31 archived programs, along with this year's installments, can be found at faithtalk1360.com. Search for local program podcasts. Friends, as we continue to scrutinize scripture, I hope we're seeing the benefit of being a detective of the divine, putting our detective's cap on, pulling out our spiritual magnifying glass, and lacing up our biblical sandals is now standard operating procedure. Because our detective's gear safeguards us from cavalierly and authoritatively babbling on with what we suppose a verse or section of scripture means. Friends, I'm saddened that we don't often realize we're imposing a personal modern-day perspective, even an oddball theory on the verses we read. I've often wondered why we so easily misuse scripture. It turns out Bible scholars were asked this same question. Their answers? Declining biblical literacy? questionable Bible translations, and preachers who don't do their homework. Now, I'm sure sincere Christians want to know what Bible verses mean, but often skip over their true meanings because they're focused on what they expect or want to find in the verses they read. It bugs me that we so often crave our spiritual quick fix, you know, being content to squeeze in that biblical morsel for the day so we don't have to give up our own time. But friends, isn't God's word worthy of our time? Is a breadcrumb really all we need? What's happened to making sure we're treating Scripture justly? What about respecting the Holy Spirit? He is the author and inspirer of our Scriptures. Have our own interests squeezed out that extra time to investigate the context or background of the Bible portions we read? After all, time well invested would certainly protect us from so easily and quickly misusing Scripture, right? 
Friends, I'm baffled. It doesn't seem to bother us that we've now classified some 51 Bible verses we've either trivialized or misread, misjudged, misconstrued, then misinterpreted and subsequently misapplied. So my appeal stands. How about we dedicate ourselves anew to more faithfully and more carefully investigating Bible verses we take for granted meant one thing, since we're finding out these verses mean something different. And friends, I take no pleasure in aiming a spiritual floodlight at or get any glee from seriously reviewing Bible verses regrettably misinterpreted by some of us pastors, teachers, and preachers. And you know I don't don't you? Because the Bible has its own story to tell us, doesn't it? It's crying out to tell us its story. But what do we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and even average Christians do? We force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story, and why I say shame on us. Well, today our scriptures under scrutiny put one foot in the Old Testament and our other foot in the New Testament as these two portions are tied together. Psalm 82 and Jesus' words in John 10, 22-39, the key being verse 34. First, Psalm 82 from the NIV, a mediating translation. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. And God's is in quotes. And how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. Again, God's is in quotes. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Again, God's is in quotes. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Today's session 52 is called, So Are We Gods? And here's an instance where basic working knowledge of the original words and concepts helps us see things below the surface that impact how we translate and then how we interpret Friends, investing a little extra time yields great rewards. Earlier I said our detective's gear safeguards us from cavalierly and authoritatively babbling on with what we suspect a verse or section of scripture means, strictly relying only on our English versions, even the best ones in certain places can still leave us out of touch with what the original author intended. You see, friends, the critical task before us is to use our detective's cap, spiritual magnifying glass and our biblical sandals to get to the bottom of what's said and what's meant. And right off the bat, the sticky wicket emerges in several words or phrases used in the second half of verse 1. Many of our respected English translations say, judgment among the gods, or something similar, gods with a lowercase g. In this word for gods, with lowercase g, or God with cap G, in this psalm, is the same word, singular or plural. The singular is El, and the plural is Elohim, perhaps a word you've heard in a sermon or Bible study. It's the Hebrew word for the one true God, false gods, and even occasionally for angels. Again, the sticky wick arises from our English translations of this word. 
For example, among English translations, there's gods with a lowercase g, heavenly beings, rulers, divine beings, even judges. What makes this even stickier is that in the first half of verse 1, English translations say heaven's court, divine council, divine assembly, assembly of the angels, assembly of gods with lowercase g, congregation of God with a cap G, congregation of gods with a lowercase g, even congregation of the mighty. <laughs> this is enough to make our heads spin. At this point, we might be thinking, why is all this spiritual gobbledygook even necessary? What possible use will it have in my everyday life? Well, friends, I'll tell you, have you ever talked to a Mormon? Talked with someone steeped in the New Age movement? Or even a brother or sister in Christ who belongs to a Word of Faith church? There's even a smattering of this in Catholic teachings. I know people in all four groups. Take Mormons. Their theology teaches that people can become gods in their own right. New Agers use Psalm 82 together with Jesus' words in John 10:34 to say we're all little gods. Some even go so far to say that those who acquired advanced knowledge of God are themselves God. They've been able to enter into the consciousness of God, thus becoming God, possessing divine consciousness. They even teach Jesus found this consciousness and became God. Then there's the Word of Faith movement, as it's called these days, with their little God controversy, as critical theologians dub it. The main tenet of these Word of Faith teachers is that when we ask something of God in faith, he's compelled to fulfill our request. Since we're little gods, our words have power. Their basis for this little God's claim is found in our two scriptures under scrutiny today, Psalm 82 and John 10.34. It's also rooted in Genesis 1.27, being created in God's image, which in their minds includes the notion that we humans are actually divine. We not only have a soul, but have dominion over the earth, and we have the same spiritual class as God himself, as they call it. Lastly, friends, and this is illuminating, the Catholic Church, as I said earlier, has a smattering of this idea in its teachings and practice. I'll quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 2nd edition, chapter 2, article 3, paragraph 1. The only begotten Son of God wanted to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature, so that he, made man, might make men gods. Now, the proviso here seems to be that this divinity is transmitted via the Eucharist, meaning that here believers are brought into union with Christ. Friends, we'll see in today's study that people in general, and Christians in particular, cannot claim divinity. It's not supported in the Bible when read and interpreted properly and in context, both the immediate context and the broader context were applicable. The truth is, we have never been God, we're not God now, and we never will be God any time in the future. As a matter of fact, friends, if the little God's position is true, what does it do to Jesus? It actually ascribes to Jesus a lesser level of divinity. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In 
other words, Jesus became human. But if we're all little gods, then Jesus must have become a little god just like us. For him, originally being part of the Godhead, now in human form, he becomes a lesser divinity. And here's the perfect place to bring in the big guns, so to speak, since Jesus quotes from Psalm 82 in John 10, our saber-rattling verse being verse 34. Jesus' divinity, or deity, was the issue at hand in the first century, the straw that broke the camel's back. The first century question remains the 21st century question. Who do people say that I am? And we're likely most familiar with the account in Matthew 16:13, where Peter makes his famous declaration, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But John's gospel opens with a less dramatic scene, but just as important, the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders asked John the Baptist who he was, implying he was claiming to be the Messiah. We know this because in John 1.19, the Jewish leaders asked him who he was, and his first reply was, I am not the Messiah. And as John's gospel unfolds, we learn that things start heating up between these Jewish religious leaders and Jesus from chapter 5 on. The straw that breaks the camel's back here may be the healing at the pool of Bethsaida, creating a domino effect. It's after this healing that Jesus' authority comes into question, along with his peculiar relationship to God the Father. In fact, these Jewish leaders say it themselves. John 5.18 says, For this reason they, the Jewish leaders, tried all the more to kill him, Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. In chapter 8, things again start to boil, the dispute over who Jesus is. The time Jesus pulls out both barrels and aims them at the Jewish leaders with, You are of your father, the devil. Notice the issue isn't just Jesus' nature, in other words, his identity, but his peculiar and unique relationship to God the Father. Watch for these statements whenever you read the Gospel of John. This will become important when we go to chapter 10. Well, I'd say we're pretty familiar with John chapter 10. It's usually a title over it in our English Bibles like The Good Shepherd and His Sheep. But I must remind us all, friends, that another of Jesus' brush with the Jewish religious leaders begins in chapter 9 with the healing of the man born blind. Well, the Pharisees enter in John in 9.13. Chapter 9 ends with Jesus calling the Pharisees blind. Then chapter 10.1 begins, Very truly I tell you, and most of us forget that Jesus' dialogue and debate with the Pharisees is continuing. And this is what I appreciate about the two updates to the NIV translation. The translators insert Pharisees here, where Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, to aid the reader so we know Jesus' debate is with the Jewish leaders, particularly the Pharisees. Well, let's pause here, friends. If you just tuned in, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. 
I value you as listeners, as a word from the word is listener-funded. Your financial partnership is vital to keep this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home and those of you who may have been hurt by the institutional church. Please join forces with me in A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at awordfromtheword@minister.com. We're living in challenging financial times, and ministries are not immune. A Word from the Word is still seeking to become fully funded, and Monthly supporters are needed. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Now, friends, chapter 10 is critical as Jesus makes several declarations that he's the good shepherd. In other words, he is exactly like God the Father is the good shepherd. Once again, Jesus is reiterating his unique relationship to God the Father, contrasting himself with the Pharisees, who are not at all like God the Father. In fact, they behave like thieves, robbers, and hirelings. And twice before verse 10, Jesus implies these Pharisees are robbers and thieves who are stealing, killing, and destroying God's sheep. So, friends, please don't argue that the thief in John 10.10 is the devil or Satan. Shame on us if we do. By Jesus comparing his shepherding to the shepherding of the Father, he hearkens back to Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and Psalm 23, giving us a full description of God the Father as shepherd, his character and actions. Well, friends, we now come to our saber-rattling verse in 1034, but the context is important. So please read chapter 10, 22 through 39, as I can only highlight some significant statements Jesus makes. In verses 22 through 30, Jesus makes it clear he and the Father are right in step with each other. In fact, in verse 30, he declares, I and the Father are one. For a similar supporting text, see John five nineteen through 30. Oh, the cults and even modalist segments of the body of Christ love this verse. The Jehovah's Witnesses work overtime to downplay this text by saying Jesus and the Father were only one in purpose or mission. But the original language and the context militate against this regrettable interpretation, which I call an interpretation with an agenda. You see, the part of speech for one is neuter, meaning one in essence or nature. And it's significant this gospel records the Pharisees' reactions to Jesus' words. At times it may be hard to figure out what Jesus is meaning, but the gospel writer comes to our aid. John 10.31 tells us, Again the Jews, meaning the leaders, picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Okay, friends, here it comes now. Pay attention. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Notice Jesus reiterates his special or unique relationship to the Father. 
Jesus continues, Why then do you, the Pharisees, accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's Son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again they, the Pharisees, tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Again, Jesus continually reiterates his special or unique relationship to the Father. Now, friends, we as 21st century readers must remember that when a New Testament speaker or writer quotes from the Old Testament, they already assume their audience, their hearers, know well the backdrop. But we have to do our homework. We're the ones that need to put our detective's cap on, get out our spiritual magnifying glass, and lace up our biblical sandals. Because, friends, when we do that, we discover this word for gods in Psalm 82, which Jesus quotes in John 10, has a particularly interesting history in relation to human beings who've been appointed to be judges, magistrates, or administers in a one form or another. So with our detective's gear on, let's embark upon our investigative journey. First up, Exodus four ten through 16. This sets the stage as Moses complains to God that he can't serve as God's mouthpiece for the Israelites to Pharaoh of Egypt because he has some kind of speech impediment. God's solution was to have Moses and Aaron work in tandem. Moses will give Aaron the words and Aaron will speak. God even says that Aaron's words will be as if Moses was speaking and as if you, Moses, were God. Elohim to him, Aaron. Note verse 4. Note 4.16. What? Moses would be Elohim to Aaron? In other words, Moses would represent God and speak as God. Next up, Exodus 7.1. God, or Yahweh, the personal and covenant God of Israel, tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and speak all the words he gives him. Then in 7.1, Yahweh says to Moses, See, I have made you like God, Elohim, to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Okay, next up, Exodus 21, 6 through 8. Here we find the law for Hebrew servants, their length of service, and how they can be released. A curious statement is made in verses 5 and 6. If the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges, Ha Elohim, he shall take him to the door of the doorposts and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. Last up, Exodus 22, 7 through 9. And here we'll see the functioning for Yahweh as an administrator or a judge includes some legal responsibilities. The context here is a neighbor's goods being stolen from their house. If the thief is caught, he must pay back double. Verse 8 says, But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges, Ha Elohim, and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid his hands on other person's property in all cases of illegal possession of, and here animal garments and other properties mentioned, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges, Ha Elohim. 
Friends, before we get to Jesus' use of Psalm 82, let's realize the entire psalm pictures earthly judges, magistrates, or rulers who have been divinely granted authority in some capacity on earth. Just survey the earthly pictures used by the psalmist, judging unjustly, defending the poor, fatherless, afflicted, needy, and the wicked, the punishment dying like humans, and God being the judge over the entire earth. Now, friends, I'll submit to you that Jesus is an able interpreter of Scripture, someone to emulate. From reading the whole Psalm 82, we conclude that its entire point is that earthly judges must act with true justice and impartiality. After all, earthly judges have a heavenly judge, and earthly shepherds have a heavenly shepherd. Which brings us full circle to John 10. Jesus compares himself as the good shepherd to the Pharisees, who were not just bad shepherds, but bad magistrates, rulers, and judges. See how Jesus respects the context of Psalm 82? Now he makes a current application to the religious leaders, rulers, and judges of his day. Jesus takes the phrase, you are gods, and points it back at those to whom the word of God came. But these unbelieving Jewish leaders respond by charging Jesus with blasphemy, claiming to be God, despite the fact that their law used the term gods for other people too. If those who have a divine position in the spiritual realm can be called gods, why can't the one whom God chose and sent, the Son of God, be God. And interestingly enough, the original lie told by Satan in the Garden of Eden is found in Genesis 3, where Satan basically told Eve, go ahead and eat the forbidden fruit, for your eyes will be open, and you and Adam will be as gods. And in Second Thessalonians, Paul tells us about the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. As promised, we'll close with an email where you may inquire about helping fund a word from the word, which is listener-funded. I love coming alongside you without a church home or you who've been hurt by the institutional church. Podcasts are at faithtalk1360.com, plus Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at christianbody.net, a word from the word is broadcast in over 70 countries. If these teachings are inspiring you to grow and study God's Word more, please invest in our mission. During these financially challenging times, ministries are not immune, so please consider helping. A word from the Word is still seeking to become fully funded. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, If you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at awordfromtheword at minister.com. That's awordfromtheword at minister.com.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.